Father, again, we thank you for the beauties of your creation. We thank you uh, that the weather is such that we were able to gather in person today to worship, to hear one another's voices in song and in confessing the faith together, uh, to pray with one another, to come together as your body, to hear from you, to intercede uh, for your world, to be shaped by the gospel. And we pray now that as we look at this prayer, that our lives would be further shaped and drawn into uh, the story of Jesus and the good news in him. Would you work in our hearts that we would see with greater clarity your promises in and through Jesus and our hearts would be drawn to pray and to seek you. Uh, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing up, we uh, used to go to my great-grandmother's house uh, every summer for about a week uh, to do a bunch of uh, boating and water sports and, and all those sorts of things. You know, we would wakeboard and water ski and tube and jump off boats into water, everything that you can imagine. Uh, and when I was uh, about 11 or 12, I just started kneeboarding, which if you don't know what that is, you know, imagine a surfboard cut in half that you strap yourself to, and then you get pulled around a lake by a boat. When you start learning to kneeboard, one important thing is you have to strap yourself in decently tight. Otherwise, you just slip right out when the boat starts pulling you. Uh, when I had just started learning, it was probably, you know, my fifth, sixth time around the lake. I was ready. I was ready for more. So I put that strap on as tight as I possibly could. It was all the way up on my legs, all the way tight. We started going around. I was feeling really good. We hit some waves. It was great. I was bouncing off of them. I hit one wrong, sideways, flipped, went underwater, the board upside down. I go to pull on the strap. It won't budge. I start yanking and tugging nothing. I start trying to paddle my way to flip upside, I get just enough to catch a breath of air before I'm tossed back underneath. It was probably only 20 or 30 seconds, but it felt like five minutes. That's the imagery that Psalm 130 begins with. Out of the depths. Out of the depths. And the question that I think this psalm raises for us is, who can answer us from the depths? Who can answer us, who can help us when our lives feel sunk? When we've been hit after wave and wave and we've been thrown under the waters and we feel like we're drowning. And in this psalm, God says to us, my steadfast love will not fail those who cry out to me. Let's unpack this psalm this morning uh, in three parts. We're going to think about the cry of faith, verses 1 and 2, and then the dynamic of faith. And here I'm thinking, what does faith do? What does faith produce? Verses 3 through 6. And then finally, we'll think about the assurance of faith, verses 7 and 8. So the cry, the dynamic, and assurance. So to start, the cry. We see right away, if you look at verse 1, this cry comes from the depths. Out of the depths, I cry to you, 
O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, this imagery of the depths, it's a reoccurring negative picture in the Bible. It's, it could be a, a place, it could be a state of mind, it could be a state of soul that one would wish that they could avoid. But in this fallen world, none of us can really avoid. From the beginning of Scripture until the end, references to the deep or the depths carry these images of terror, danger, chaos, evil, and death. The word is used, uh, for example, in the Old Testament to refer to the judgment against Egypt at the Red Sea when they were swallowed up in the depths and Israel was delivered from the depths. The imagery is used in Psalm 69 where the writer is being attacked by enemies who are persecuting him and attacking him. And he says in, in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have risen up to my neck. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So as we picture the depths, I think we ought to think about all of the hardships and sufferings of this life. All of the miseries and sufferings of living as fallen people in a fallen world. So this would include everything from the weight of our own guilt for sin or shame we experience. It, it would also include the hardships we just face living in this world. Or certainly the ways that others might have sinned against us. The situations where we feel caught, trapped, weighed down, gasping for relief. And what we see in these opening words is really a perennial human experience. Life becomes overwhelmed. We feel like we're drowning. We feel flooded with concerns and stress and anxiety and problems and things that are so complex that we feel like we can't change. Uh, almost three months ago now, there was an article in The Guardian titled, COVID-19 is nature's wake-up call to a complacent civilization. The writer says this, quote, We have been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. In the rich nations, we have begun to believe we have transcended the material world. The wealth we've accumulated has shielded us from reality. Living behind screens, passing between capsules, our houses, our cars, offices, shopping malls, we persuaded ourselves that contingency had retreated that we had reached the point all civilizations seek, insulation from natural hazards. Now the membrane has ruptured and we find ourselves naked and outraged. That was three months ago. Think of what has happened since. Not only, obviously, the, the continual spread of COVID-19 and, and various people dying from that, but the murder of George Floyd the protests, the anger, the frustration, the unrest in society. It, it feels like things are coming apart at the seams. And I don't know how this has affected you, but multiple times as I've sat with these realities or as I've watched various things or thought about these problems, it is overwhelming. I don't have a clue how to fix it. And even when these world events are not piercing through 
the comfortable spaces we can try to create in our lives. You know, think six months ago or a year ago. We're still left with problems that we experience in our jobs, in relationships, in families, in marriages, with kids, and in our very selves. I want you to locate that feeling, that feeling like you're drowning, that feeling of the waters are rising above my head. What do you do when you experience the depths? Some of us, me, are venters. I vent. I complain. I got to talk it out. Uh, I got to express it. You can ask Aaron, my wife, that I do this. Um, others of us, not me, are stuffers, at least what I call stuffers. You know, we, we hide and we bury it and we try to stuff it until we can't. If you just think about the first six words of this psalm, there is really nothing unique here. Out of the depths I cry. That is universal. What is unique is how that line ends. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And this isn't one of those cries, you know, maybe when someone sends a flare prayer up to God, kind of one of those like, wow, okay, God, I've, whoever you are, whatever you are, if you're there, you, can you help me out here? The writer is calling out to Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord, all in capital letters in your Bible, that is the Hebrew for God's personal covenant name. This is the God who revealed himself to his people, who bound himself to his people in covenant. This is the God who delivered his people at the Red Sea, out of the depths. The writer is crying out to a person. It's like the day when I finally came out of the water. I didn't come out of the water yelling, someone, anyone, is anyone there to help me? I came out yelling, Dad! And I was looking straight at my dad at the end of the boat as he was about to jump in to get me. The cry of faith is crying to the personal God who reveals himself in Scripture, a God who can be known who is active in the world and in our lives. And I think it's also important for us to just, as we think about this psalm, and as we think about the depths and experiencing the depths, and that idea of drowning in the depths, this really reveals the foolishness of looking to anything else that would save us or try to secure us from ever having to experience that. Because in one sense, think about it, you could have everything you've always ever wanted in life. You could have the relationship you always wanted, the family you've always wanted, the house, the job, the, the security of all of that. And in a moment, the depths can swallow it up. The psalmist cries to the Lord because the Lord alone is outside and can answer us from the depths. Let's think about uh, the dynamic of faith. We see this in verses three through four, three through six, sorry. Uh, here we're thinking about what does faith in Yahweh produce? What does it do in us? If we have really cried out to him, what begins to happen in our lives? 
And in those verses, verse 3 through 6, I think we get a picture of this dynamic. We see this movement where those who cry out, in, cry out to God in faith, they're marked by humility, verse 3, a reverent fear, verse 4, and this future orientation, verses 5 and 6. Let's, let's think about each of these. So first, humility. There is a recognition of our sin and guilt before God and before others. A person who cries out to Yahweh, which is really to say a Christian, a real Christian, as we see in this text, is someone who can honestly say, Lord, I am not fundamentally different from others. I'm not better. I'm not of a different class. I'm not morally superior. In the words of verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you've cried out to God from the depths, if you've cried out asking for his mercy, there is, in a sense, an immediate recognition that you're someone who not only suffers from the depths, but that you participate in that brokenness, that you bear culpability. And for a minute, let's just think about the opposite of this, the opposite of this kind of honesty and humility that we see in verse 3. The opposite that, in a sense, says, no, I am fundamentally different. I am fundamentally better. And I think this is something, right, it's always easier to see from a distance. So let's think about the destructive nature of self-righteousness and arrogance when it shows up in, say, a relationship. So a marriage, perhaps. When someone can't or won't admit what they bring into that relationship. You think about it at work, right? When someone won't acknowledge the part that they've played in a bad decision. You think about it with leaders. When leaders won't acknowledge blame or fault. In all sorts of ways, some known and intentional, and some that we are surely blind to, we sin. That is, we do not live into what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. We fail to love God and we fail to love others. And I'd like for you to just think for a minute, you know, regardless even of what you think about the Bible, just think for a minute how valuable humility is and how needed it is, especially at a time like we're in now. Those who cry out to Yahweh are marked by humility. They're also marked by a reverent fear. And verse 4 is one of those verses that if you look at it and you stop and think about it, it sounds kind of strange. The writer has just acknowledged his sin, and then he says this, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It sounds like he's saying forgiveness leads to fear. What is he talking about? When, when you and I are afraid of someone or something, usually that means we're afraid of what they might do to us. My kids are little. The fear of monsters has begun. Monsters under the bed. I don't know if, I hope you can relate to that at some point in your life. I remember when I was afraid of monsters under my bed. You don't take off the covers, no matter how hot you get under them. If you feel like you have to go to the bathroom, you don't go to the bathroom. 
because you don't want to disrupt the monsters. You stay very still. Now, think about the psalmist. This is really weird, right? Because he takes this thing, forgiveness, which is deeply personal and relational, and he pairs it with fear. Whatever the fear is, it can't be like the fear of monsters, because the psalmist is crying out to God. He is summoning God. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says that he longs for God with all of his soul. I think this is what's going on here. If you've ever received a costly gift, maybe your parents, when you were 16, gave you a car, or they gave you the keys to their car. How do you hold them? very carefully. Um, You think about maybe you received something from like a grandparent or a parent, something that passed down through your family, something very precious, maybe, maybe an incredibly precious instrument or something. How do you treat that? There's a kind of carefulness and a fear. There's a sense that this is really valuable and I don't want anything to harm it. This is what happens in the dynamic of faith. Forgiveness is costly because ultimately forgiveness costs the very life of the Son of God. And so coming to him and knowing that you have no place to stand and yet you've been received and accepted and forgiven produces this kind of joyful fear. Joy because he has received you and he's poured his love on you and he's forgiven you. Fear Because you desperately do not want to continue sinning against him and sinning against his love for you. Those who cry out to Yahweh also have a future orientation. If you look at verses 5 and 6, the psalmist says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Now, I chose the wording future orientation rather than using hope, even though it's used right in these verses, because I think oftentimes when we think about hope and how we use that word, we use it in a way that expresses almost more of a wish than a certainty. You know, we we hope something will happen, but we might have varying levels of confidence that it actually will. The writer, in talking about this kind of future orientation, this hope, It's an active sort of waiting. It's rooted in God's very word and promises. And then he gives us this really great illustration, this image of watchmen watching over a city, waiting for the coming morning. This is more than a vague wish or a hope. This is a life that is increasingly shaped by a certain future that God has promised. When I think about that idea of a life being shaped by a certain coming future, it makes me think of when Aaron was pregnant with Liam, our first child. So our lives during those, I don't know, six or nine months, uh, they were actively waiting for, hoping in, and shaped around a certain coming future. So we traded in our broken down car for a nice, reliable Subaru. 
we had the car seat installed, ready to go. You know, the room was prepared with uh, the crib and the diapers and, you know, all the things that babies need. The overnight bag was ready. Anyone who looked at our lives, though Liam had not yet been born, anyone looking at our lives would have said, these people are about to have a kid. They're about to have a child. And that's the kind of waiting that the psalmist is talking about. Building our lives now around a certain future. I love how one writer uh, put this. Uh, in talking about this passage, he says, In picturing the watchman, the psalmist chooses as his illustration a hope that will not fail. Think about that, right? Night may seem endless, but morning is certain. And it's time determined. What do you hope in? Or we could ask, what are you waiting for? What are you willing to wait for? What future hope is your life built and shaped around? I think we can often, you know, we can see it by how we spend our money. We can see it in how we invest our time. We can see it in what we dream about, what we hope to see in a particular day, in a particular week, in a particular year, or even decade. Do our lives increasingly evidence this future orientation to God's coming kingdom? You might be here today, and you might realize as you think about this, I've never cried out to Yahweh. Not like this. This dynamic is not evident in my life. And if that is you, here's what the Lord would say to you. Cry out to me. Take these words from this psalm and your life and speak to me from your heart. If you're here and you've cried out to Yahweh and you're a Christian, this dynamic never stops. Right? This is our psalm. We experience distress in the depths. We cry to the Lord. We see our sin. We see things that we didn't see a year ago, that we didn't see a decade ago. We re-experience the forgiveness of God. We long to be nearer to him, and our lives begin to take on this shape toward a certain future that God has promised. And we should do all of this because of the assurance of faith in verses 7 and 8. The psalmist, up to this point, has been praying to God. And in verse 7, he turns, in a sense, to the congregation and says, Y'all, hope in the Lord. Here's why we must cry out to him. Because with the Lord, with Yahweh, there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. If you're familiar with uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones captures this rich Hebrew word, hesed, steadfast love, as it's often translated. And she, she captures it with this phrase, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is why you ought to hope in the Lord. Because... The Lord has steadfast, stubborn, faithful love that is unflinching toward those who cry out to him. In verse 8, he will 
redeem his people from all their iniquities. He will ransom us. He will buy us back. But someone has to be asking or thinking, how can I know? What if the worst happens? What if the depths swallow me and I never resurface? What if I never recover from my illness, from my disease? What if there are things that have happened in my life, whether it's because of something that I've chosen and I've done, or whether it's things that were done against me, where I feel irreversibly damaged? How can I know that the Lord's steadfast love will redeem me? And the answer is, because the God we cry out to from the depths is the very God who dives into the depths to get us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was plunged into the depths from his birth all the way to the cross. Jesus Christ was born poor. Jesus Christ was a racial ethnic minority. He lived life in our world, in the misery, in the depths. And as he hung on the cross, the evil of this world, the darkness of this world, the suffering of this world, the injustice of this world, our very sins were poured out on him until in a sense he drowned, bearing our iniquities and our sorrows. And from the depths, he cried to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he received no answer. He bore the weight of the depths in our place to buy us back, to redeem us. And as the risen and ascended Savior, he is the only one who could look you in the eye and could say, you will never suffer more than I have suffered, I understand. You will never sink to a place where I cannot come and redeem you. There is nothing that if you cry out to me that can keep me from raising you up to be with me forever. His resurrection is the down payment. It is the guarantee. It is the proof that with the Lord is steadfast love and plentiful redemption and he will deliver his people from all of their iniquities. Will you cry out to him? Let's take a moment to pause and pray and perhaps uh, confess to the Lord and ask for his help. Let's do that now.